Well, church, since next Sunday is Christmas Day, today ends our Advent sermon series titled The Mothers of Jesus. Let me just ask you, what you think about these sisters? Huh? Four weeks journeying with these ladies. What you think about? Amazing. How about God's Word? Y'all know that we've done four weeks of preaching, basically taking four words or so from a genealogy. Isn't God's Word amazing? It really is. Well, today brings us to the literal mother of Jesus, Mary. And the artist who made the artwork for this series, Tammy Staten, she told me about the heart symbol. If you notice, there are four symbols representing the four women that we've covered Mary's symbol is the heart, and Tammy told me this. All the other women had symbols that represented something they did or their status, but Mary's was about her very being. It was her heartbeat to which Jesus would attune in the womb and on her chest. Matthew writes of her in verse 16 of his genealogy, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom... Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Like to bear the Lord Jesus himself, that is the greatest honor of all humanity, placed upon this young woman. And so it's good and right for us to be curious and to ask this question. Of all the women God could have chosen, why Mary? Now in order to answer that question, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1 verses 26 to 38. Young disciples, if you don't have a guide, they're over here on the table, and that is a passage that you'll need to write down for your guide. You can find that on page 855 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. So there are so many things that I could say about Mary. It's kind of hard to prepare a sermon, one single sermon on her. But I've narrowed down this sermon to two answers. Of all the women God could have chosen, why Mary? I think God chose Mary, one, to show us how God's grace comes to us, and second, to show where God's grace takes us. Young disciples, you'll need words from those two answers throughout uh, the gathering. We will come back to them, so if you can't get them written down now, you can write them down later. Well, with that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. And if you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Church, hear the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. 
there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's say this together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, many of you who are newer to Antioch may not know this, but the chalices that we use every week during communion, do you know where they came from? Not Hobby Lobby. Anybody? Yes. From one of our very own, the potter, Rebecca Flint. She made these for us. I can't even remember what we used before that. Anybody go back that far? What were they? Red Solo Cup? No, just like a little white one there. Oh, maybe that is. Maybe we were old school too. I don't know. So anyways, we, we use these now, and I feel like this is one of the best decisions I ever made, asking Rebecca to do this, like a member of the Antioch family, using her artistic and vocational gifts to bless the body of Christ. And so this week I asked Rebecca how exactly she went about making these, because it's no simple process. And here's what she said. Before making them, I weighed out pieces of clay so that I could use the same amount for each stem and for each cup, hopefully ending up with each finished chalice resembling the other in shape and size. So each chalice began as two wheel-thrown pots. After some drying time, I trimmed some excess clay off with a sharp tool, further shaping and refining their forms. Then I attached each cup onto its stem, rotating each assembled chalice in the process, and readjusting to make it as level as possible. I love this part. I carved my name in the foot of each chalice. Yeah, she did. There it is. Yeah. And eventually they were dry enough to be fired, then glazed, then fired again. Wow. See, and what amazes me about these chalices, like it isn't just the, the final product, which is lovely, but it's the process. Of making them. See, just like in Genesis 1, fashioning them is a human display of God's beautiful, creative power. And when you hold these chalices, you're beholding a tangible expression of God's grace. And so as I've considered Mary this week, I've been amazed by this human display of God's beautiful, creative power. It's similar to my deep admiration of Katie over the past year's pregnancy and her mothering of Madeline. So much of my life is like in the public eye, like I'm literally standing on a stage right now, okay? But so much of Katie's life and the ministry to which God has given her and equipped her to do so well 
is done not in the public eye. It's done in the wee hours of the night where no one sees except me. And so I find myself sitting and just admiring her and saying, what excellence, what skill, what beauty, what sacrifice, what love. And I think that Luke is offering this same kind of admiration here, especially if you think about the fact that he could have possibly been interviewing Mary herself in order to tell this story in such detail. And of course, it does provide for us the significant Christian doctrine of the virgin birth. And we'll talk more about that later. But that's not Luke's primary purpose here. As one scholar puts it, the focus is God's gracious work in fulfilling his promise to deliver his people. You see, the birth's birth's miraculous character is primarily a display of God's beautiful, creative power. In other words, it's written to show how God's grace comes to us. Young disciples, you need that word how, and that word comes. We read beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So like this, this is the moment of all moments, the climactic buildup from the Old Testament, from the beginning of creation, like the hope of Adam, the promise of Abraham, the prophecy of David. God's Messiah is finally coming. Like the general Gabriel is sent with this victorious pronouncement from the Most High King himself. So like You read it and you know it, but what you should be hearing is like the orchestra cued. Think like Tim Donaldson times 100 at the highest crescendo of the symphony. And the advent of the gospel goes to Nazareth and Mary. Like Nazareth is called a city here mainly because in the Greek there is no word For podunk. Because that's kind of what it was. You're talking about a village of a couple thousand people. And one known only for being the butt of jokes. Like people say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like anything? Like they're not even known for like one good thing. Like man, they make a really good soda in Nazareth. Like, you know what I'm saying? But no, nothing, not a single good thing. And the advent of the gospel goes there and then mary like all we know is that she's a virgin from podunk like that means she's an uneducated peasant who was probably a teenager hey teenagers in the room look at me for a minute where are you at teenagers yeah the advent of the gospel could have gone to anybody and it came to who a teenager god sees you he knows you and he has purpose for you right now not just when you get older look at this an uneducated peasant who was probably a teenager living under foreign occupation in a society where she had zero social standing and the advent of the gospel goes to her yes this is how god's grace comes to us the most high comes to the most low. 
And this is the confounding nature of grace. So this week I tried to explain grace to my girls this way. Imagine, girls, that you knocked down the Christmas tree. Maybe after bedtime you'd been told to go to sleep and be quiet, but you knocked down the Christmas tree. And it broke every ornament on it. And then the lights caught fire, which burned down the entire house. Imagine that happened. And you caused it. And we're standing in the yard looking at nothing but the smoldering ashes of what was our home. Like, how would you feel in that moment, knowing that you had caused that? Knowing that you deserve a kind of discipline beyond anything you've ever experienced. And the way that mommy and daddy respond in that moment is we take the ashes upon ourselves. We take on the burden of fixing the situation. We take responsibility. And then for you, we get in the car and go and get you not just ice cream, but a lifetime supply of ice cream. All you could ever want or eat anytime you ask. You see, grace isn't just not giving you what you deserve, which is judgment. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve. God himself in full supply. This is bestowed on me? Can you imagine how that would hit their hearts? This is what grace does. And as a peasant from Podunk, Mary gets this. Look at this in verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Note that the phrase, O favored one, comes from the Greek root word charis, which means grace. Mary is the graced one, meaning specifically that the Lord is with her. You see, grace is never just a thing. It's the provision of God himself. And interestingly, this is the same phrase that's used in, of all places, the crazy book of Judges. Like if there were ever a place in the Bible where the children are knocking down the tree and burning down the house, is Judges. And so there the angel of the Lord comes to this wimpy farmer named Gideon. Young disciples, you'll need that name for your guides. Gideon. And the angel says to Gideon, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon's basically like, what? Like, I'm from the most podunk people in Israel. What are you talking about? Yet God will go on to use this lowly man with an army that he whittles down nearly to nothing to conquer the enemies of God's people. And I think this is similar to the exchange between Gabriel and Mary. She's greatly troubled like what i'm from the most potent people in israel what are you doing talking to me i'm favored the lord is with me she's greatly troubled not by the glory of the angel but by the glory that the angel is bestowing on her and this is what we call sovereign grace do you know what sovereign grace is not the church the thing Sovereign grace is God's absolute power. That's what the word sovereign means. Young disciples, you'll need that for your guides. Absolute power. 
over all creation, including his kind choice of who will gladly receive him. Now, I know that this concept can seem unfair to us in human logic, right? Can we be honest about that? Even though we're in a Reformed Baptist church in Louisville, Kentucky, this, this concept can still kind of squeeze your logic into uncomfortable places. But also use your logic like this. Sovereign grace is the way in which God tenderly overcomes your resistance in order to give you himself in a way in which you actually desire him in return. Like, which is why it's also known as irresistible grace. You've heard that term? Irresistible grace? Oh, he's gone Calvinism now, you know. But let me, let me hear my heart here. Like, irresistible grace. This is not a violation of the will. It's that which when everything inside of you is saying no, and saying no for good reason, what comes out of your mouth is yes. Yes. And this is good news because left to yourself, you would never say yes. Thanks be to God that he overcomes our resistance. And it answers the question of why God chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus. Not because she was the prettiest or the smartest or the most devout. The most low does not first come to the most high. It's not how Christianity works. God chose Mary because the most high first comes to the most low. Verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. See, once again, God's grace isn't just a thing. It's the provision of God himself. God is going to literally put himself in Mary's body. And not like some Greek god having intercourse with a human. And nor by a violation of Mary apart from her own will. The miraculous character of this conception will be a display of God's beautiful, creative power. In the virgin birth, Jesus comes both fully human and fully God. He's encased in sinful flesh and yet not sinful. He will be the child of Mary, yes. But he will be the son of the Most High. And this is how God's grace comes to us. Like this is is the test of true greatness. Like not being being a nobody who becomes a somebody. Like increasing, which is how our world puts such great value and admiration upon. No, the test of true greatness is being a somebody. Who becomes a nobody? Decreasing. Like this is what we admire about the president, Abraham Lincoln. Like it's it's not just, it's not just his true greatness was in that he went from a log cabin to the presidency. 
What if he was like a crappy president? Then we'd be like embarrassed that he was from Kentucky, right? So it's not, that's not his true greatness. It's that he went from the presidency into the dark perils of civil war and eventually into assassination. He was a somebody who became a nobody. He decreased. And this is how God comes to Mary. This is why he's so great. Why he's the most high. This is how God comes to us. And then secondly this morning, I think God chose Mary to show where God's grace takes us. Young disciples, there are two words there that you'll need. Where and takes. If you can't get it now, adults, hopefully, beside you can help you get it, get it written down. Or if you miss a gap, young disciples, come to me and ask me. I know I'm the big preacher up here. Hopefully I'm not scary to you. Just come ask and I'll help you fill in the blank. I've got all the notes right here. All right? The story continues in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, we have certainly already acknowledged Mary's lowliness. But make no mistake, like this is a woman whose name means excellence. And as she gladly receives God's kind choice of her, like this is the perfect recipe for greatness. Who, me? No, 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 no. But what comes out is yes. Oh, that's the recipe for true greatness. Here, unlike the priest Zechariah just a few verses before, he didn't even believe the angel. Mary, on the other hand, she's totally tracking with Gabriel. Like, that's a song, Mary, did you know? Like, yes, a little, and no, some. Okay, so yes and no is the answer. <laughs> so you'll see what I'm saying in just a minute. She, she doesn't understand everything, but she got, she's tracking enough. If she, if she wasn't tracking with Gabriel, she would just assume that her and Joseph were going to have this great son someday in the natural way in their family. But instead, she wonders how God's beautiful creative power is going to make this happen. That's why she asks her question. And Gabriel responds in verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. See, the word overshadow here, it occurs a few times in both the Old and New Testament. One time in the Old Testament, when God's glory cloud comes to rest on the tabernacle. That's the sign of his presence coming down. And then in the New Testament... When God's glory cloud comes to rest on the mount of Jesus' transfiguration, showing that his presence is there. It's in that same way that God's presence is going to come and rest on Mary's womb, allowing people to behold a tangible expression of his grace. You ever thought about that? Like, why, does God, why can't God's presence just come? Why did it need a tangible expression like a glory cloud falling on the tabernacle and on the Mount of Transfiguration? Because he's given us a chance to see it, to see the presence coming down. And so if God can make his story happen in whatever way he chooses, 
but he intentionally fashions a man and a woman out of dust, just like a potter makes two chalices. Then please believe that he can do this too, and he'll do it in a way that allows us to behold it. That's why he's overshadowing Mary. And so Mary responds in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold. You know, that's a Bible word that's like doesn't really care any meaning except behold, right? But it's actually the word just like see, look. You know, she, the, the, Gabriel's been saying to her, Look, Mary, see this. And it's so cool that she responds to Gabriel, All right, your turn. Look, see. I am right? I am. Not, I'm going to do something. I am. This is the very being of who I am. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel, I would imagine, was like, yeah, girl. And he departed from her. Now, we can hear these words of Mary and be like, man, of course she'd say that. Like, angels show up, and I'd say that. But grace is not so easy to receive. And if it was, then everybody would. This place would be packed out. First of all, you got to be low enough for grace to come to you. And second, you got to be bold enough, crazy enough, maybe we might say, to let it take you. Like, listen, Mary doesn't know all that lays ahead on the path of grace. She doesn't. Song says maybe she does. She doesn't. But here's what she can at least discern in this moment. Many li- Mary lived in a, in a culture that was more antithetical to a virgin birth than even ours today right? Jesus, when he claimed deity, what happened to him? Done. Donezo. Mary, if she claims that there is a child within her of miraculous birth who is deity, what's going to happen to her? Come on. It's antithetical to a virgin birth in this culture. So no one is going to believe her. And what they will believe is that the child is illegitimate. Therefore, Remember, she's processing this in this moment. If I say yes to this and this happens, my family is probably going to disown me. And my betrothed is probably going to divorce me. And my community is probably going to shun me, if not stone me. Everything inside of her has to be saying, No! No, I will not do this! But what comes out of her mouth is yes. Specifically, let it be to me. In other words, let me be disowned. Let me be divorced. Let me be shunned, stoned. I am the servant of the Lord. And I give up my rights, no conditions. Take me. Wow! (laughs) Just wow. Like that has to be irresistible grace. It doesn't make sense otherwise. Now, of course, like we know that the dominoes aren't actually going to fall like that. No, no. It's going to be far worse. 
man named Simeon, will later prophesy to Mary. If you know the story, do you remember what he says to her? He says, a sword, and the word he uses is not dagger, a broad, double-edged sword will pierce through your soul, Mary. That means what? Well, let me sum it up like this. The beginning and the ending of Mary's mothering of Jesus will be completely blood-soaked. Flesh will tear. Alone. Unaided. That sacred moment when she gives birth, in contrast to all our lovely nativity scenes, one artist describes it more realistically this way. It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. And you could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night. Like, let me pause for just a moment. And you enter this scene enough to open your ears to hear a woman crying outside your doors in the street on a cold night. Nobody coming to her aid. On the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean. And the cobblestones were cold. And little Mary, full of this grace that God has chosen her to bear, with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. Look, if you have stood by a woman's side when she has given birth, and to think about the nature of this going down like this, I just can't even imagine. And then fast forward to the end. Like, that's, that's, that's how the mothering of Jesus starts. And you fast forward to the end. We read this in John's Gospel. But standing by the cross of Jesus, was it not bloody? Not gruesome? People turned their face away. The disciples couldn't even watch. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother. Didn't leave his side. And his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, his women. And what I'm getting at here is the further confounding nature of grace. The Most High comes to the most low. He made Mary somebody. But to let it take her into true greatness meant following the same downward trajectory as him. Being a somebody who became a nobody. Decreasing. Soared through the soul. And this is where grace took her. And by God's irresistible grace, she didn't abort what God was doing in her. So don't be surprised when grace does the same in you. I love these words from Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Shoemaker. Women, when you picture serving the kingdom of Christ, do you imagine suffering? Or do you have a sanitized and romanticized vision of kingdom surface? Do you think that following Jesus in singleness or marriage, in mothering or in barrenness, in being a wife or widow or divorcee will be easy 
Being a woman is a calling to blood, sweat, and tears. Men, does it seem chivalrous to exclude women from painful missions work and possible suffering? It's not. Do you think that biblical manhood means excluding women from potential suffering for the kingdom? It doesn't. Brothers, don't fear that your sisters are too weak for this suffering. They're stronger than you'd ever imagine. They've been enduring hardship since Adam and Eve left the garden. And as confounding as it is, what I'm describing here is nothing less than God's beautiful, creative power on display. In Mary, in all these mothers of Jesus, we behold a tangible expression of His grace. And it's just like these chalices. I didn't actually finish the whole story earlier. Some of you may know the part that I'm about to tell if you've been around for a minute. When Rebecca finished making these, she made two of them, we, uh, with great excitement, unveiled them at a family meeting. We told everybody the process. We oohed and awed over them because we had gone from the red Solo cup white thing to this big change. And so we, we, we put them up on display on the communion table, even though it wasn't a family, even though we weren't going to take communion, we put them on display there so that everybody could come up and see them and hold them and check them out. And so after family meeting, we're all mingling around like we always do after gatherings. Kids are going around like crazy, like they do after gatherings. And I'm standing, you know, center of the room back there, facing this way, talking to somebody. And I noticed that there are some kids who started to play under the communion table. And it was still a time where we had a a tablecloth on it. And I noticed that as they played, one of them got the tablecloth kind of caught under their foot. And so the tablecloth started to pull. And I watched as those chalices started to inch toward the edge. And it was like slow motion. Just like, no! And there they went. They tipped over the edge, fell to the ground, shattered to pieces. I'll tell you this, we didn't buy those kids a lifetime supply of ice cream. (laughs) I hope they're doing well wherever they went off to boot camp after that. (laughs) Pray for them often. Just kidding. It was pretty awful. Rebecca's not in here, but she knows. It's pretty awful. But according to the grace that we've all come to know and love in Rebecca, she was willing to make more just like them. Except this time, she writes, I didn't just make a few. I made a small army of them. All closely matching so it would be easy enough to replace a broken chalice the next time, exclamation mark. (laughs) And isn't that the same thing? Y'all, isn't that the same thing that God's grace has done? 
Yes, it is on display in Mary in a beautiful way. But only as a sign pointing to the Most High, Jesus Christ. The Most High became the Most Low. You see, God's sovereign grace came to Jesus in flesh, was fully bestowed upon him as the glory cloud rests on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Father says, This is my Son, my chosen one. You see, the Father was delighted for Jesus to bear him in fullness. And God's grace not only came to Jesus, but Jesus gladly received it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Do you hear the echoes of the story of Mary? Let it be to me, Father. I am the servant of the Lord. Let me be betrayed. Let me be condemned. Let me be flogged. I give up my rights. No conditions. Take me. And then as Jesus receives God's grace, look at where it takes him. His end will be a blood-soaked cross. He will be shattered to pieces like two sacred chalices. The greatest somebody became the greatest nobody. Why? So that you could be remade. So that in his rising, he could remake not only you, but an army of sacred chalices. Listen to this word from Romans chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's some sovereign and irresistible grace on display. Why? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. An army of chalices he seeks to remake in his dying and in his rising. Like, yes, Mary was given the greatest honor of all humanity to bear the Lord Jesus. But to all who would be low enough for his grace to come to you. And to all who would be bold enough, crazy enough to let his grace take you. You also get to bear the Lord Jesus Two. So where are my nobodies at? Got any nobodies in the house this morning? My favored women? My mighty men of valor? In Christ, you are somebodies. And so you can let God's beautiful creative power now display true greatness in you by following the same downward trajectory. Being a somebody now in the eyes of God who becomes a nobody, decreasing. Some of you are going through hell and you don't know why. You think, like, why is it just one hit after another? 
Why is the fruit not coming? Why so much failure and discouragement? Why can't I get back overseas? Why can't I fulfill my desire for ministry? Why can't I overcome this depression and anxiety? Why won't this doubt go away? Why can't I get rid of the guilt and the shame and the fear that I wake up with in the morning and go to sleep with at night? Why is life so hard? What have I done or not done, God? What if this is actually the downward trajectory of grace? What if this is your sword through the soul? What if this is the picture of true greatness? Like, what if this is the life of excellence? What if this is how he carves his name into our chalice? Don't abort what he's doing in you. And listen, man, I'm preaching this to myself. Like I'm in a season where I feel like Gideon. I feel like everything around me is just getting whittled down a little bit more, a little bit more, and there's not going to be anything left. I'm like, Lord, what in the world did I do to make you mad? And yet this is, this is where grace takes you, Brad. Don't abort what he's doing in you. Where when everything in you is saying, no, I'm done. What comes out is yes. Yes. And that is what is on display, not only in communion, but also in the ordinance of baptism. God overcoming our resistance to him. And we have the joy of celebrating that today. See, baptism, and Robert, if you want to come on up, brother, you can grab this mic over here for your testimony. Baptism is one of the most important steps of obedience that a Christian can take. It is a declaration and a display of the total salvation that Jesus has already provided within the human heart and soul. A person is lowered into the water to symbolize the death of Jesus, and then the person is raised from the water to symbolize the resurrection of Jesus. And this is something that has taken place in Robera's life, and today he wants to give testimony to you in regard to it. Brother? Good morning, Antioch. Uh, it's an honor to be here. I'm going to read my testimonies uh, as follows. My name is Robert Ardunia. I was born in Ethiopia on July 6, 1995, into an Orthodox family, but not a true believer. I lost my mother on December 1, 2003, and my father was so sick in 2004. I remember that the doctor said he had only five hours on earth. I can't imagine what life would look like for my two younger sisters and me if I lost my parents when I was 10. My grandmother was a Christian and prayed to God to save her son, and God answered her prayer. After my father left the hospital, my grandmother and his friends 
convinced him that he would be healed if he became a Christian, and he decided to be. He was healed, but I was not easily persuaded to convert to Christianity. I was the last person to follow Christ in our family, and I remember vividly the day I decided to follow Christ. My dad said on this very day, son, I was almost dead, but Jesus saved me. Can you imagine this life without your mom and me? By that moment, I noticed the care of God for, for my two younger sisters and me so we wouldn't be orphans. Since that day, I have started to go to church. The more I stayed in the church, the more I began to understand the redemption plan of God to restore the broken relationship, the broken relationship between God and humans. My spiritual journey with Christ started at Sunday school and was followed by serving in a choir. However, I would not say that I was so intimate with God. I was not obedient to his law and lived a sinful life. When I was a second year student, when I was a second year university student, the Lord used the book so-called Purpose Driven Life to change my heart and led me to seek the purpose I was created for. After reading that book, I became a different person. God put in my heart the interest to study abroad. I was admitted to Grand Canyon University to study Master of Business Administration in 2019, but I was denied visa three times by the U.S. Embassy in Ethiopia. I was similarly denied by the Canadian Embassy once. At this point, my dad said, son, give up on this foreign study and live your life here. But I told him that God had already promised me and he would make it happened by his timing. In 2020, when the world filled the days because of the pandemic, I went to Sweden to study masters in economics. While I was in Sweden, God inspired me to learn his word and prepare for ministry. God opened the door for me and I joined the Southern Baptist Seminary on August 15, 2022. However, the transition from economics to seminary was not easy for me. In the middle of the semester, I decided to quit the seminary when the semester was over and to study another program. While wrestling with this thought, I went to Tanner Williams' office. He's an academic advisor for international students to seek an advice. That's when I heard about Antioch and Pastor Bradley. Pastor Bradley has been sincere with me since our first male conversation. I can see that he has a good and caring heart for others. I always feel belong when, whenever I come to worship with Antioch. I decided to become a member at Antioch because I considered that Pastor Bradley knows my culture and my language which will make my future ministry easier. Finally, though I was baptized by Springling 
sprinkling in the Orthodox Church, I have decided to have a true believer's baptism by immersion as I become a member at Antioch. Thank you. Thanks be to God, brother. Thank you for sharing and declaring what God has done in your life and what a powerful testimony it is. Church, this is always a reminder for us that baptism isn't the finish line of the Christian life. It's actually just the beginning commitment, and there is a long race to run. Therefore, he is not just committing to be a member of this church, but we as members of this church are committing to come alongside him to help him grow in his faith in Christ, to encourage him, and hopefully to see him one day sent out to the nations to proclaim the good news of Jesus to so many who desperately need to hear and experience him. And so today, we're going to finish before we go into baptism by asking one more important question. Robera, what is your sacred confession? Jesus is Lord. Amen. Jesus is Lord. All right. Well, come on forward, brother. Step into the water. Pastor Robbie, come on over. Church, you uh, have experienced how we get you involved physically in worship by asking you to stand up at times, by asking you to move your arms at certain times. Um, you can also dance and shout at certain times if you want to. That's okay, too. I did one time, and I felt awkward afterward because nobody ever does that around here. So anyways, but you all didn't kick me out. So anyways, what I would invite you to do is when we get ready to baptize, Robera, for you to just lift your hand and to join us as pastors as we baptize our brother. Brother, we are so grateful for what God has done in your life, and it is our honor to baptize you, and remember to hold your nose as we go down, to baptize you, our brother, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in new life. Brother, before you go, we want, to, we want you to be the first one in line to get to share communion with us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. So this is the, this is the true display of grace right here. It's a thick one. This is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today, to you, our brother, Robera, and to all the body of Christ, we are announcing that Jesus Christ is delighted to bestow on you the greatest honor of all humanity, to bear him in fullness. Our tradition here is to come forward, to break off a piece of bread, to dip it into the juice, remembering what Christ has done for you, and in so doing, proclaiming that he is coming again. If you're a baptized believer, whether or not you're a member of this church, we invite you to participate 
and coming to this table. If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we would encourage you not to come and pretend that you are at this table, but that you instead would take Christ himself. You'd turn away from your old life and say, I don't want to try to be somebody anymore. I recognize that I'm a nobody in my sin, and yet Jesus came in order for me to be saved so that I could be. He is the only way for me to be somebody. And if you need help, if that's confusing, come back and talk to one of us who will be in the back. We're there to counsel and pray with anyone who has any need. Now, church, let's pray. Father, we bow before you. And if this, Lord, is the sacred meal to which we come to, which is the centerpiece of Christian worship over the course of church history, then sometimes I feel bad by having a long prayer. It's almost like the person who prays way too long before a tasty meal. And yet, Lord, we linger in this time in prayer, not just so the worship team can transition, but so that our hearts can transition from receiving your word to this sweet moment in which we respond. And we respond in a tangible, physical way by coming and receiving a sign of you into our bodies. And so, Lord, help us in this moment to prepare ourselves. To take note of any shame hovering over us that would be holding us back from being able to come to this table as you invite us, which is without shame, without condemnation, gladly. It's almost like you sit at this table saying, come on, I did this for you. I'm so glad, so glad I did. Lord, I pray that you would move by your spirit in this moment, that you would compel those who trust in you to trust in you all the more in your good heart. That whatever resistance is in their heart, you would overcome it today again with your grace. And for those who do not know you today, that they would be overcome in their resistance by your sweet grace. It calls them near in kindness. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.